cliffcentral.com. So Greg Ellis is an Emmy Award-nominated actor. He's got an Annie Award-nominated uh, voice. He's got an international career that spans the stage, the screen, television. You will even have heard his voice in video games, the recording arts. He's been a singer. He has been on Titanic, for God's sake, opposite Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. He was in Pirates of the Caribbean with uh, Johnny Depp, who's written the introduction to his book, uh, the book which we'll be talking about in just a minute. He is an incredibly talented man. He performed for the Queen. He was in the original cast of Starlight Express when it came out, um, directed by Trevor Nunn and with Andrew Lloyd Webber. He is the real deal when it comes to someone who's been an, an extraordinary success in entertainment. And now he's testing his hand at writing a book about his own very personal and very harrowing journey as a father who wants to have some presence in the life of his two sons and has had an extraordinarily difficult time achieving that. Uh, Greg Ellis, what a pleasure to see you, Greg. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you, Gareth. So, Greg, uh, usually people's careers go the other way around. They start off writing about something serious, and, and then someone picks up on that and goes, wow, this is a really smart guy. And then they work towards a career in the entertainment business. But it seems you've gone the other way around. You had a career in the entertainment business, and you've decided to take on a very controversial subject. Why, why the wrong way around? Well, that's a great question, Gareth. Um, it really was down to my personal experience, what happened to me. Um, the respondent exposes the cartel of family law, and it's my true story. And uh, it's also uh, the story of so many hundreds of thousands of parents and partners and fathers and mothers, predominantly fathers, bias within the family law system, just exposing that. Um, what happened to me personally uh, was a personal tragedy, and I, I hope I'm turning that around into something good and giving back and giving hope to uh, people that are stuck in this hopeless situation. Well, well, let's start with that because your own personal story is is obviously an inspiration to you, but it may be very relevant and it may be very familiar to so many fathers all over the world and to so many men who are in a similar situation. So tell us what actually happened. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I go into detail in this in the book, particularly at the beginning, at the opening of the book. Uh, in the span of 24 hours, I was ushered from my home in handcuffs, um, committed to, uh, well, I was incarcerated, the first of five incarcerations, subjected to a temporary restraining order in divorce court on the basis of a false allegation, a 10-word hearsay false allegation. I became homeless, almost destitute overnight, and I watched helplessly as my career was uh, and livelihood was ruined. Um, my money was taken from me, uh, all, of them, all, the, all of the money that I'd earned throughout my career, uh, my home, I became homeless. And the most important and most meaningful thing in my life, my boys, my two young sons who were 10 and 8 at the time, um, and they lost a father. And so I went on an odyssey, uh, a journey, a quest, if you will, to understand why it happened. Um, I found out that I wasn't insane and it wasn't just me um, mm. in happening to so many fathers and parents and sometimes mothers, too. Um, and some of the statistics and the experts that I spoke to who've been looking into this and studying this for, for decades, really, um, just it just blew my mind well, what's been going on and still is. You know, a lot of people would think that just because you'd had this incredible and varied life in entertainment, that you're that you're beyond the reach of ordinary people's problems and that family issues are easier to deal with when you have resources and you have uh, fame and you have fortune and you have, um, you know, the, 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 I suppose you could call it the perks of the kind of life that many people dream of. Of course, it's funny that the law doesn't seem to care about any of that stuff and that the law itself is something that can be wielded against some people with a huge amount of, of unfairness. And on other people, they seem to, to, it almost seems to brush right past them. Um, there's nothing worse than seeing the law applied unfairly. And, and I can understand that that might have been a motivation too for you to address this very, very difficult subject. 
Yeah, look, I didn't, I didn't want to write this book. I had to write this book. Uh, when, when what happened to me back in 2015, I looked for some assistance, some guidebooks, some any books in the marketplace, and there were really only books written by women for women on how to ruin your husband and your man and get the house and the kids. And um, you know, I wrote it to make sense of the government-sponsored devastation of my life and destruction of my family. I wrote it to let my children know, my my boys know, that I had not abandoned them and never would. I wrote it to tell other similarly situated men and fathers that they're not alone. And perhaps most of all, I wrote it to to ring the alarm bell um, about a broken system and call for social change and family law reform and improvement. Um, There's so... Sorry, there, is, there are so many people who are calling for social change and family improvement and things, but it seems to be in the opposite direction to the way that you were. Um, again, something that I'd like to just draw contrast to right at the start of this, uh, you're almost taking a position which is not terribly popular and certainly wouldn't have gained you any friends in Hollywood and, and in, in other kind of elite establishment areas because most of those people, the narrative goes, well, it's usually the dad who's the bad guy. It's usually the dad who shouldn't get custody. It's usually the dad who should be punished to the full extent of the law. And the mother can be forgiven almost anything uh, just because she's a mom and because men have been horrible to women for hundreds of years. And that seems to be all the argument that's required. But you're putting yourself on the other side of that argument and saying, hang on a second. I'm, I'm a dad who wanted to be a good dad, who wanted to do all the right things. I wanted to see my kids. And the law took a very, very ugly stand against me being able to do all those things that is an unpopular place to be so you not only are writing about something controversial but you're also taking a point of view which makes you unpopular very uh look you know with the recent uh rise of um you know the anti-male fervor and this you know smash the patriarchy all men bad um toxic masculinity um, it's very difficult with this sclerotic rage bait culture we live in with cancel culture to actually have a conversation of nuance, to have civil discourse, talk about the statistics, um, agree to disagree, attack the argument, not the person. And, um, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, I don't think demonizing men and fathers is the solution. I think that's the problem. Um, and there are good men and bad men and there are good women and bad women. And, you know, I was a present dad. I cut the umbilical cord for both of my sons. Um, I was the emotionally, the more emotionally attached parent um, of the two of us. And the system doesn't allow, I mean, this is the one thing I want to make clear, that this system is, um, it doesn't provide due process or the presumption of innocence. And, that, and that's the only branch of our legal system where there is no presumption of innocence. So that means that criminals... Um, Murderers, rapists, terrorists, pedophiles all get more legal rights than law abiding parents. And the silver bullet, as I call it in, the, in my book, there are six of them, the silver bullet playbook of high conflict divorce is the smoking gun of this corrupt legal system that's become the go to strategy for divorce lawyers that guarantees a win. So I'm calling upon politicians and policymakers to improve and reform if possible, the one branch of our legal system that has no due process, no presumption of innocence, and where parents are found guilty until proven more guilty. And it echoes, I think, Gareth, what's going on right now in our current culture and cancel culture, where for the slightest indiscretion, um, people are found guilty in the court of public opinion until proven more guilty. The apology pathway is not unblocked. And I think the key here is this $60 billion in America. It's a $60 billion a year industry that's incentivized to keep the acrimony going at the expense of families and children. And that's staggering. There, there are a few things that I'd just like to get to. And, and I'm sure that there's anyone listening to this now who's now suddenly curious about your, the exact circumstances of your, your, your relationship deterioration with the mother of your children. And I think we can't just pass this without at least some comment from you on what exactly happened because people will be curious as to when the law decided to enter your life and precisely how that happens and then we can get into into the, the details of of what the law does to to fathers and and how it treats fathers and how it simplifies the whole narrative to being about 
you know, oppressor and victim, which is happening in many other places in society at the moment and something which is very, very worrying for those of us who do believe in the rule of law and equality before the law. But let's start off with the story of, of you and your and your wife. Yeah, I mean, I won't I won't go into too much detail because it's in, it's written in great detail in the book. But basically, what happened was on March fifth, two thousand fifteen, I was at home, married twenty years, two young boys. Um, life was great. Um, you know, I had earned some privilege, worked hard over a career, and I was home playing with my sons. I'd taken the afternoon off, um, and we were playing in the playroom, and there was a phone call. Um, uh, and I didn't know about this phone call, a phone call to the authorities, to the police. And um, my ex-wife had said, uh, allegedly at the time, I didn't know, I wasn't aware of this, that um, I was confused and the police needed to go to the house. Um, they said, can't go to the house if he's confused. And she said, what do you need to hear? And they said, we need to hear he's a threat to himself or the children. And mm -hmm. of course, then the 10 word lie, the hearsay lie, uh, was 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 told and the police came without the warrant, without really any any cause whatsoever. After checking on my boys and me, um, and entered my home and handcuffed me, uh, evaluated me, uh, removed me. I wasn't uh, obstreperous or I was compliant. Um, I was scared, uh, very very scared indeed. And that was the beginning of um, of this uh, this odyssey of this authoritarian maze, this dystopian Kafka trap. Um, and this false allegation, I've since found out that uh, 86%, if you look at the statistics of domestic abuse allegations, resulting in a TRO, which is a temporary restraining order, or an EPO, an emergency protection order, are not sustained once the case moves to a permanency or evidentiary hearing. And this shows that the majority of domestic violence allegations are false uh, or unprovable, but when you're in, in a court or a branch of the, the legal system that does not provide you process or the presumption of innocence, you're guilty before you go in. And, and it used to be that the police had um, discretion when they were called on these calls to have conversations. To, no, to they don't. It's mandated. The removal from the home is mandated. Right. Um, and this is this staggered me when I found this out. So, so in other words, one one party is able to completely make something up. Yes, and yes. ruin the other party's life, have them thrown into jail, have them taken away from their children or their children taken away from them. And there is absolutely nothing, no matter how innocent you may do, you may be of those charges that you can do to clear your name or to get things on the right track or to even make it seem that you're not the guilty person that you've been made out to be by someone who's completely fallacious in their accusation. Correct. Um, there is things you can do. You can spend, you can spend, like my ex-wife spent 1.8 million, I think it was around 1.8 million dollars on her attorney, um, who summarily left the case after four years. And all she succeeded in doing is breaking up the family. I think she's now suing my ex-wife for $450,000. Um, it's, this is why I mentioned the Salem witch trials and the Spanish Inquisition. You know, mm -hmm. you're a witch. Uh, no, I'm not. Prove it. Well, but you know, we'll dunk you in the water if you if you drown. You 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 will. No, which if you float, you're also which. Right, and then we'll just burn you. So right. this is this, why we this, introduce jurisprudence. So I think I think this is particularly painful for so many men to hear. And and again, this is going to sound like we're only interested in one side of the story, but damn it, for a change we are, because mm. I think there are too many uh, shows, there are too many interviews, there are too many discussions, there are too many fora, and because. Women are better at talking about these things than we are as men. Let's admit that. They tend to have a support structure for themselves every time they, they, they have a real problem in their lives, which most men don't. We, we tend to improve each other and, and critique each other and help each other in private rather than in public, um, which also makes us different. But I'm curious about the fact that there are probably many men who will be listening to this even here in South Africa where we have a similar legal system. And, and certainly a lot of our law is inherited from, from the English legal system. I wonder if they're also thinking while they're listening to you tell your story, well, that's exactly what happened to me. Those feelings that you felt, what, what were you actually going through at that time? Uh, it's maybe something painful for you to relate, but what, what did it do to you? It was traumatic and, uh, it was a, it was a nonstop psychological thriller, like living in, 
I guess, you know, the fugitive meets the game with Gone Girl uh, in in The Firm, uh, if I were to choose four, four particular movies. Um, it was shocking, catastrophic, a uh, massive sense of loss. And, um, yeah, I think many I've, – I've been receiving, since my book came out last week, I've been receiving between 30, 40, 50 emails a day from people, predominantly men and fathers, who have gone through this, who are going through this. I spoke to a young man from Texas yesterday, um, tried to offer him some solace and hope. And um, he spent over $2 million, has no relief. Um, he has two daughters who are 10 and 8, and he hasn't even met his 8-year-old daughter. She was uh, six months in the womb um, when all this started. So, And he, he lives in his front room with balloons and, and birthday cakes and it, haunting just just tragically haunting. Um, and the lack, I think, of having these kinds of conversations, and all credit to you and thank you, is, um, you know, men, we are stoic. We, we bottle up our feelings. We're not supposed, we're supposed to be strong and tough. And that's the canard. We should be talking about this. Um, Ten divorced men in America take their, their own lives every day. Um, 4,000 children lose a parent in family law every day. Um, One the US, in every three... One in every three uh, children in America doesn't have a father. Well, I mean, you know, the dad deprivation is staggering. I mean, when you talk about dad-deprived children, you know, in 1968, 8% of children lived in a a home with only their biological mother. Um, And today, more than 23 or 24% do. Um, And and in South Africa, our numbers are horrifying as well. We've got such a fatherlessness problem. In fact, it's it's probably at the heart of so many of our social ills. And because it's the cause and it's not as sexy as some of the symptoms, it doesn't get the attention it deserves. Now, what what happened in your case? Because, again, people are going to be curious and many of them will hopefully buy the book and, and find out for themselves in detail. But how long did it take you to get your life back together? Is it back together? Hmm. How long did it take you to get your relationship with your kids back on track? Is that back on track? And what is the current status for you and, and, and you know, your ex-wife even? Well, it's, it's not back on track. I don't see my boys. Uh, they were affect their father and their ability to have a father was effectively killed off by authors beyond my demise. Uh, I fought for four and a half, nearly five years in a legal system that afforded me zero relief and my sons even less relief um, as they grew grew through adolescence. And seeing, knowing the pain that they have endured, the psychological, the split psyche, um, all of the horrific situations that, that have happened to them, which I detail in the book, um, you know, I'm reminded of a quote, Gareth, if, if, if there's anything that we wish to change in our children, we first examine it and see whether... It's not something that could be better changed in ourselves. So there is hope in my story. There is a redemptive element to my story. Um, there is there is a living grief that, that, that many parents, uh, I will say, uh, fathers and mothers, have to cope with on a daily basis. Um, trauma resides in the body, and the body keeps the score, and it's unrelenting. And the psycho- psychological scars uh, of being living on the edge of that existential terror and angst when the meaning of your life and what you love so much that you would give your life for your sons or your daughters is removed. Um, and you can't help them see them, guide them, shepherd them, go through those rites of passages. Um, you know, I think everyone's struggling with something, uh, particularly with recently with social distancing, but, but our children who will become the next generation, um, of leaders and politicians and doctors. And we, we, this is why this conversation is so important. Um, and parental alienation, which is, I've been discussing and I talk about in my book and I talk with some experts. It's the one area I think of family law that's completely counterintuitive and misunderstood, particularly by the experts in the system. It's psychological child abuse, plain and simple. And, um, to your point, Fathers and sometimes mothers have no redress. And the evidence suggests that children of divorced parents are more at risk, um, not just the psychological effects of this brainwashing, which is what it is. Um, they're more at risk not from their biological father, but from the mother's new boyfriend. 
Um, yeah. That's not to suggest, by the way, that every new boyfriend of a divorced woman is. I mean, we always have to have these prefaces. You yeah, know. There, well, you, there are no caveats necessary here. I think we're talking about your particular experience, and you're talking about the the, the information that you've you've discovered in researching this book. But I do want to highlight a few things that you've already brought up. First thing is there seems to be this. Um, it used to be unspoken, but now it's out there in the open with its teeth bared and its claws bared, and it's it's making itself very evident. This this war on competent masculinity. There seems to be a grudge that's being held by I don't know who people who are politically ideological, uh, people who are uh, who've come out of miserable uh, home lives themselves. I don't know what the cause of their misery and their hatred and their dislike of competent masculinity is. But would you agree with me that there seems to be an all-out destruction campaign against good men doing what good men do in society and demonizing all those things that men are actually meant to be responsible for in society, trying to make everything about how we're exactly the same as women, trying to make everything about how there's no real need for you know heterosexual, cisgender men in the world. They're actually just a pollutant do you agree that all of that is now sort of coming to the fore in a big, ugly, frothy way? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, having looked into this and spoken with some of the uh, first and second wave feminists, I've, I've actually, it's been interesting to find out some of the causes for why, and, and it's taken decades. For example, Erin Pizzi, who started the world's first shelter for domestic violence, I talked with her, um, and that was 51 years ago she started that shelter. Uh, when she saw and noticed that um, the rates of intimate partner violence, uh, many of the women who were coming into her shelter were, were just as violent as, as the men, just in different ways, obviously. Um, and, and you look at the statistics, 52% of men, 48% of women. So it's, there's not too, many di too much difference in the numbers. But Erin talked about this. She had a cat poisoned and killed. The bomb squad was sent to her home. She got hounded out of England. She told me about this meeting in 1969 in New York with the leaders of the feminist movement and, and they split and there was the first and second wave factual equality empowerment feminists sure. who I support, who want, who wanted to, you know, continue the empowerment feminism. And then this, this radical postmodern progressive brand, if you will, of third and fourth wave feminists who decided that they would pivot uh, the feminist movement and introduce two words, toxic masculinity. And it's taken decades. It's gone through the institutions, the academy. And at a time when modern fathers are bombarded by message about messages about the deeply corrosive effects of quote unquote toxic masculinity, we're now confronted with institutions psychologically conditioned now to think that men, the male, the man, fathers, masculinity in general is toxic. Uh, and to your point, de again, demonizing masculinity is not the solution. It's the problem. No. And it's funny that whenever things do get a little bit heated and things do get a bit difficult in a society, the very men that have been um, abjectly the, the subjects of derision for, for much of the time leading up to that are called upon with uh, open arms to help defend that society. Um, of course, by then it might be too late. And, and the second and, th and the first and second wave feminists that you talk about are, are now on the chopping block themselves because Sorry. standing up for women's rights, for example, when a, a transgender man enters a sports team, um, that's just not, that's not very fashionable anymore. It's not, it's not politically correct to be supporting uh, feminists, women against those men, those men's rights seem to trump the women's rights. So do you believe in toxic masculinity? Is that a thing? Or do you think it's, it's been constructed like so much that the left tells us is socially constructed and probably isn't? Um, I'm not sure if it's being constructed. Well, I'm, I mean, it was planned. I think it was you know, from that 1969 meeting. It was, you know, great branding, simple branding, like many of these catchphrases that we hear in society and mainstream media. But I do think, you know, um, if we're going to talk about toxic masculinity, why haven't we been talking about toxic femininity? Uh, we've had this Me Too monologue. Perhaps we should have a Me Too dialogue. Um, men, I think, well, need course, to if you want to solve the problem. You'd have to you'd have to involve men. But that doesn't seem to be the point. No, I think the whole point of that particularly radical strain of feminism is to uh, do away with the man, do away with the family unit. I think the, the greatest threat to, to uh, Western civilization right now is the breakdown so of the family. Why, why would? Because, you know, a lot of people who are sympathetic to, to the left politically or socially will say, well, that's ridiculous because why would they want to destroy something which is the, the fundamental building block of society? Why would they want to break down 
the nuclear family? Why would they want to remove men from any any position of authority, power, or even a position where they can deploy their very purpose, which is to secure the, the people they most love around them? They'd say, you sound like a nutcase. You sound like a conspiracy theorist. I've had people tell me that when I bring it up. What do you say to them? I think that we have um, th those that brand of feminism does not see and did not see and does not want women to stay at home and be homemakers and, and give birth and doesn't see that as any, any value to society. They want women to, to be out there smashing the patriarchy, working, being successful, being champions of industry, CEOs and anything and everything uh, that can be done to smash men, uh, to, to harangue uh, the masculine. Um, will be mm. done. It's no wonder that we have, you know, we have so many of our, our young boys are suffering, our younger generation of boys and girls too, because it, I think we want, well, we want boys. Haven't, to haven't, they, haven't they also shown in, in, in countless research projects that have been done by even the most left-leaning institutions that a, a, a boy or a girl who grows up without a good father figure, a good masculine influence in their life is just doomed from the start no matter how hard the poor mother tries on her own that kid's just never going to be a full happy person the way that someone who has both a father and mother in their life or at least a good father figure in their life along with their mom uh will ever be it, it's unfair and to even say it is almost like sacrilege but this is true right i mean it's 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 not hard to find the evidence for this in society mm. No, it's all over the place. I mean, you just look at the American Society for the Positive Care of Children, and they say that every statistic, every metric makes it categorically clear that the safest living arrangement for a Western mother and her children involves a home with the biological father. And dad-involved children is what our boys and girls, our children need. Um, you know, being involved, loving fathers, you know, children with involved, loving fathers are more likely to do well in school, have healthy self-esteem, exhibit empathy, um, understand discipline, boundaries, uh, pro-social behavior, avoid high-risk behaviors such as drug use, truancy, um, criminal activity uh, compared to children who have uninvolved uh, fathers. So um, we, we are incentivizing as well here in America, we're, we're incentivizing this single parent family with um, with with our state systems that are getting reimbursed by the federal government, um, thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, the child support system is flawed um, for every child that's placed into adoption in, in America. Uh, the, the state gets $6,000 reimbursed by the federal government. This means we're incentivizing adoption. Now, that's not to say that there aren't parents out there, you know, who are, who, and children who need to go to adopted families and that, and they're wonderful, good quality parents. But there are a great deal of them if you're in a system of family law where, you know, present fathers are being, um, destroyed and tossed aside, um, that are, are going into very questionable environments. You, you sort of jumped the gun on the question here, but I'm glad you did because I was going to ask you who are the main beneficiaries of this obviously not very sensible and quite corrupt system. You've mentioned that the state itself is a major beneficiary. I, I'd like to think and I'd like to hope that many other people think that there are very few honorable people in the world quite as honorable as people who are willing to adopt someone else's child and look right. after that child and raise it to maturity with love and care and consideration and resources. But there are obviously also elements of society that just don't like the nuclear family for whatever reason, that see as a, a straightforward and extremely simplistic narrative of the, the, the father's usually the problem, so the mother usually needs support of some kind. I mean, we know in, in black families in America that they've never been in as terrible a position in terms of, of, of fatherlessness as they are now. They sure. were during the years of slavery because at least the father was present and the government wasn't interfering at that point in the family. It's since the welfare state was born that we have this huge problem of the state stepping in as the father. And of course, the state is bound to be a much worse father than any father, even the very bad ones, because it's not ever present. It's just going to give money and 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 try to apportion blame where it's not necessary. So what do you think the main beneficiary of all of this terrible ideology and this terrible legal theory? Is it just the lawyers? Are they the are they making the, the majority of the money here? 
Who else is making money? Who else is benefiting? Certainly not the kids. No, the states are benefiting. Uh, mothers are mothers are placed in very difficult positions in terms of fi- it's financially many yeah. in many situations better for them to be single than it is to stay with the biological father, which is understandable. Um, I think it's this way I say the states. It's also the state bar associations. This is where um, they they need to be held accountable. Um, they write the family law code books, um, so they're writing their own playbooks. Um, and and basically profiting, planting money trees and churning the acrimony and looking at the family estate and saying, oh, there's this much money, I'll keep this going for this long. And then yeah. to many of them, even the good ethical ones are stuck in this system where there isn't relief. So that's what I'm doing as well is trying to find solutions um, and programs and develop ways that can help people. How do we keep people out of court if the court system isn't fair and doesn't have jurisprudence? And how do we help and give relief to those people who are stuck in the divorce trap? And men obviously have some responsibility here to to not make ourselves our own worst argument. Um, There are obviously lots of men who do absolutely unspeakable things to their partners and their children. And those men uh, who thankfully are still in the in the in the minority of of any family situation are unfortunately made the examples, and the rest of us are forced to have to try and prove that we don 't fit that terrible example. Um, do you think men have been an argument against themselves for a very long time, and that that 's partly why we ended up with a system that is so patently unfair? I think some men obviously don't, you know, to your point, are abhorrent and and deserve to be brought to justice. And that's why I talk about domestic violence. It should be a criminal offense. Um, you know, it's not. And it should be. Um, domestic violence isn't in, in, in America a criminal offense? Nope. It's, it goes to family law and quasi-kangaroo courts with no due process with the burden of proof on the accused. Um, you know, one of my, one of the board members of my new charity, CPU, Children and Parents United, about around 26 years ago, he was uh, taken to court, a uh, family law uh, court based on a false allegation. He lifted his wrist and said, Your Honor, arrest me. And the judge said, Are You crazy? He says, No, it's violence is a serious offense. Arrest me, take me to jail, read me my rights. And he, what he was basically saying is, I get more rights if you arrest me and, and I'm a crim- mm-hmm. criminal. Um, so I think as well, and to your point, you know, this is why I bring up the, the, the false allegations and how we can hold more people accountable because those who, 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 who charge false allegations and ruin and uh, reputation savage another, it's an affront to the real victims of domestic violence who deserve our empathy and compassion and support. And, and, and it it makes my blood boil when I hear. I, I had this conversation with someone a while ago because uh, just just like almost anybody these days, it, whatever gets said about you on the internet um, becomes the story, right? And uh, th- there was a, a completely made-up allegation about me feeding drinks to a 15-year-old one night in a club made up by someone who created an account on that day and had disappeared the next day. But, you know, the the, the danger is in the accusation, and it's very hard to come back from that. And there is absolutely no consequence for people who make these false allegations, none whatsoever. And I've always thought that what you just said a minute ago is probably the most important part of what happens there because you're in my reputations. We can spend time and money. And if we want to a huge amount of effort on trying to restore, um, and maybe we get there and maybe we don't, but the real damage is to actual victims, actual women who are caught up in really dangerous situations because it has the effect of making trivial things seem important and equating on the other end of this that terribly, terribly serious things, which involve violence of the worst kind, rapes, children who are abused, the things that society obviously should scorn from top to bottom. It makes those things look as trivial as someone misgendering someone in a bathroom somewhere. And I think that that's extraordinarily damaging to those women who are fighting for their lives, frankly, and for the lives of their kids. It's disrespectful. It's damaging in the extreme, and it makes a mockery of the legal system. I agree. The stickiness of the internet and the false allegation or the the frenzy whip of that moment. How do you how do you defend against something that's not true? Uh, yeah. you, you're you, you're wasting your time, or even if you do try, then they say, "Oh, he he doth protest too much." There's probably some truth there. 
you know. Yeah, and there's no amount of apology. It's why I talk about the apology pathway being blocked. You know, if you haven't done anything wrong, um, you're not guilty of a transgression, then do not apologize. You will not be uh, forgiven if you apologize by the, the social murder mob. Um, it, it, it's it, it's not some, you know, in a world where suspicion always indicates guilt, due process is dead. And I think we're seeing this on anti-social media. We're seeing this with the fervor of the reactivity of, you know, the clickbaitery, the, the, the sensationalist ratings driven mainstream media, which is why it's refreshing. You, shows like yours are extremely refreshing where you can have a civil discourse. We can talk about orthodox opinions and heterodox opinions and challenge each other and, you know, with critical well, I, things. I want to know your opinion on, on uh, perhaps you know a little bit more about South Africa than, than I think you do, but we've got an enormous problem with, uh, with femicide in South Africa, with, with men who kill women, men who rape women, men who do appalling things to the female population of this country. Women in this country are under attack by a, a, a large proportion of the male population who are just monsters. And there's no other way to put it. So it's a very serious issue in South Africa. A lot of those men come from broken and hostile backgrounds themselves, and they just perpetuate that cycle of, of violence on whoever they happen to be with, and that's usually their own families. A huge number of the murders in South Africa, on where the murderer knows that the, the, the person they kill or where the person who's being killed is very aware of the fact that the person who's likeliest to murder them is the one who they sleep next to at night. And obviously that's slightly different to places like America or Canada or New Zealand or Australia or Denmark. But it interests me that they all have in common this idea that if men aren't raised properly by other men and there aren't men in their lives at the right and important times, that they'll invariably end up being destructive later on. And nobody's addressing that problem. Yeah. In fact, I, it seems that all the machinery of state is pointed in precisely the opposite direction. Well, first of all, I didn't know about the, the, the scale of this issue in South Africa, and it's and, and that's horrific. Um, yeah. But I think you've hit you've hit on something really important there, which is we so we so often tend to focus on what the media talks about, um, the surface story, uh, the statistic: this person killed by this person, and here's the story. But underneath there. What's driving that? Um, you know, Dr. Warren Farrell here in America wrote a recent article about boys who hurt, um, hurt men and women, and they just become hurters. Um, and I wrote a recent article on um, Walter Scott, who uh, I think it was 2015, was shot eight times in the back by a white police officer. And, um, you know, he's pulled over for broken taillight. And... Um, that was the story. It, it was the race was the primary story. Um, the, the inherent racism, white cop shoots black man. Okay. Now under the surface, Walter Scott was running from child support. He'd been thrown in prison twice, couldn't make his payments. The interest had gone up. He lost his job. He was living in, in poverty. Um, he wasn't a dead broke dad. We hear a lot about that. He was a, a he was a, a, sorry, he wasn't a deadbeat dad. He was a deadbeat dad. Um, and, you know, we talk about back child support. Oftentimes I talk about black child support because the people, to your point earlier, the people really suffering the most are, 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 are men of color, um, minorities. Um, if you look at the disparity in, you know, prison, prison rates. So I think, you know, to your point, most social acts, I think it was Solomon, Solomon Ash who said most social acts have to be understood in their setting and lose meaning if isolated. No error in thinking about social facts is more serious than the failure to see their place and function and having a look at what's driving this, what's causing this and bringing in some of the experts and doctors and professors who study this, who write about this and finding out why a preponderance of school shootings in America are young Caucasian males talking about the motivation, the, 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 the rise in unmotivated young men and what those factors are. Um, so and was, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Dr. Leonard Sachs's book, Boys Adrift, he talks about the five factors um, uh, that, are, that are pushing this growing ep epidemic of unmotivated boys who become uh, underachieving men. And uh, it's video games, prescription drugs, environmental toxins, teaching methods. And number five is the devaluation of masculinity. 
So we're all responsible. I say this a lot, and I, I, some people have a hard time really understanding what I'm get, getting at, which is no one is to blame. No one is at fault. We are all responsible. So how can we be more accountable? You know, tomorrow I vow to make better mistakes. I'm not perfect. I'm not but, suggesting There are a couple of things you mentioned in those five factors that we can start addressing immediately. And it seems that when government, the academy, the media, and society at large decide that something is worth putting an effort into, it's amazing how all of the power can be brought to, to, to a head and, to, and, and create real social change. One of those things that you said just now is this idea of devaluing masculinity. And yet it seems to me that all of those before mentioned sources of authority and power in society are working in exactly the opposite way. Certainly we can't stop each individual man from behaving badly in any given situation. And we also can't just assume that all men are good because that would be just as deleterious to the cause. But here we have example number one out of five potential areas we can improve the situation for women and for children. And we're not interested in solving the problem at all. We're just interested in grandstanding and using it as a political whip with which to corral our supporters or our enemies. Yeah, but masculinity, men and males, well, it's been devalued. Who wants to really talk about them? Just be stoic, you know, put up with it. Um, we are the, the apparently, allegedly many times, um, the, the, the entire reason for all of social ills. And I remember, you know, I talked about the panic-demic at the start of COVID and how the behavioral science would affect how we moved through um, this uh, challenging period of social history. And... Um, with social isolation, and particularly with these messages, Gareth, of, of social distancing, that's a terrible message, terrible message. Physical distancing, social connectedness, even if it's virtually yeah, speaking. Absolutely. And this, all of these articles that came out that were, you know, um, more women, more minorities dying of COVID. Well, let, how about we just talk about men and women? 60 to 70% of the plague's victims are men, up to 7 out of 10 of the people dying behind these glass partitions early on in the uh, pandemic without their loved ones were men. Um, and oh, you look that's, at, that's a very inconvenient narrative. That well, goes I'm, against what we're being told every day by a, a hugely complicit media. I agree. And you know what? I'll be inconvenient um, and I'll yeah. speak to it because, look, when we talk about suicide, you mentioned that 800,000 people die by suicide every year, 132 suicides every day. That's one person every 40 seconds. And the male suicide disparity rates, nothing tells the story better than those statistics and rates. I'd mentioned, you know, in every day in America, 10 divorced men take their own lives. American men uh, kill themselves almost four times more than women. And when you take that back to the family law, uh, and you compare those stats, um, fathers who've become ensnared in the divorce system kill themselves eight times more than women. That means that for every child who loses their mother to suicide during or after uh, divorce, eight children lose a father. And so that's why I talk about this cartel of family law causing a national mental health emergency that nobody's talking about. Was there a time when you were going through your proceedings that you thought of taking your own life? That's a um, good question. Um, I didn't think actively of taking my own life. I did not have suicidal ideations. but And I talk about this in the book too. Um, I talk about living on the edge, the razor's edge of existential terror and angst and anxiety and loss and grief. I mentioned living grief. Um, you know, there's a finality to death when someone we know or, or love uh, dies and no parent should be burying their children. But when when someone is still alive and you're cut off, you cope with that ambivalent or living grief. And so there was a period of time in 2016, which I address in the book, that became almost unbearable. And I've talked to fathers who have been in similar situations. I've also read the suicide notes from fathers, good fathers, good men, you know, who've, who've left this earth way too soon because of this horrible system. And I've also talked to um, a couple of parents in, in literally in the act of, or, or the expression of the ideation actively. And it's, people need hope, Gareth, hmm. you know, they just need hope and relief. 
life sometimes is feels um looks unbearable at times these waves come washing um and if we can help people ride out these waves of existential angst um um and people living lives of quiet desperation uh where the tyranny of the urgent tells the self enough i can't handle this anymore um then we can maybe do some good in the world rather than um continuing to say this is what i stand against and this is what i hate well this yeah. is what i stand for and this is what i love and i love uh, my sons i love kids i think kids are amazing um they are the real innocents here and um you know i think um how old are your boys now 17 and 14 wow yeah. i mean that's you know that's exactly the age i think you're probably starting to to look at what being a man is all about and yeah i think you know they're probably thinking about you as much as you're thinking about them huh i don't know i don't know parental alienation it is i talk about brainwashing it really is a, a, a dark it's child abuse psychological child abuse and you're you're actually cementing um uh a hatred uh, a contempt and an evisceration if you will an erasure of of the other parent so um it's uh it's very difficult uh to endure knowing that one's one's children particularly boys need those rites of passage it takes a mother to raise a boy it takes a father to raise a man they need that guidance that shepherding that discipline that risk reward and sense of adventure whereas mother generally nurtures and brings child close tends to any injuries psychological physical um dad will traditionally be that risk reward you know let's go and you know, have some adventure and we might break a break an arm or a leg or get a cut or a bruise but we we get ourselves back up and move forward and without that i think there is an imbalance in the psychology of our children it's uh it's that's a lot to to swallow and it must be that much worse for people who are not just listening to this but feeling it um yes i yeah. i don't know that there is a part of the law certainly in america and and maybe it's true for for us here in south africa maybe it's true for people all over the world for for fathers um where there's a part of the law which affects so very many people and is yet seemingly so unfair on the face of it um you know there are there are all kinds of laws that are being brought in now to protect you know transgender athletes who are 0.0003% of the total population we had the whole world grind to a halt for 0.003 of the world's population who died of covid and god you know forgive any of us who who had to watch any of our our relatives die or suffer from from this or any other disease but we've done things for far smaller communities before it would seem that every child every person who's ever existed has to have a father and a mother and the father seems in the case of most of our legal systems to be given a really bad deal it doesn't yeah. seem right in it's any right. situation it's not right and i think it's going to take more more mothers uh, and women to speak up on this issue too i think when I mean, there are some allies out there but we really but need to as a patriarchy so you know if if men uh, are in charge of everything as these uh, these feminists keep telling us then why haven't they changed this singular aspect of being man i mean you'd think if they were men and they cared about the patriarchy the first thing they would do is make sure that the 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 the, the system of custody worked in favor of men rather than so hopelessly against them well i mean there's one one prime example equal shared parenting in family law it should be a default 50-50 so that when two people enter the legal system and there are children involved it should be mothering and fathering equally as important 50-50 and if one side believes that that they should have more t- custodial time i don't like the word custody but it's what they use mm-hmm. um then they can prove their argument in court which again is burden of proof on the accuser rather than the accused um but that's not what we have i mean brad pitt recently um a retired judge in charge of his case with angie he had to fight for months and his victory was what was 50-50 shared parenting that should have been the default starting position full stop full yeah, stop yeah. 
And how many how many fathers don't have the resources that Brad Pitt wow. had at his disposal to do this? I mean, it's extremely. You've already indicated how costly it is, but it's also extraordinarily tough mentally and emotionally on on both parties. Not to mention the children. Why put them through all of this? If you default fifty fifty, and people, if they have an argument either way, have to prove something, then it seems to me you're not wasting the court's time, let alone the kid, the father, or the mothers. But you're not making as much money, and once you've once you're ensnared in the in the system, this is why I talk about you know with Johnny Depp, who I mentioned in the book, he wrote the forward yeah. uh, the introduction of my book. The, he he had the silver bullet in 2016, what I call the silver bullet, the false allegation of domestic violence, and it's stuck. Right. And you see, you know, victimhood's become the new social currency, and its economy is booming. And um, when vic- victimhood is rewarded, responsibility never follows. So there is zero accountability. We've found out all of these stories since about Amber Heard, um, you know, who went on to become a, 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 a spokesperson for domestic violence when we've seen the video and heard the audio that she's committing acts of domestic violence too. Abuse has no gender. Um, and if we want true equality, we should really talk about why the executive order that President Biden wrote on his first day of gender equity was uh, gender equality for all peoples, dash particularly women and girls. Why particularly? Doesn't all people cover it? The domestic abuse bill in London that's just recently been going through the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Domestic abuse uh, bill for women and girls. Well, that means that baby boys, teenage boys, non-binary, heterosexual men, they're not covered under the bill. There is There is an extreme... Um, inequality in these laws and these groups and these people who are talking about this. And it's, it's, it's moral hypocrisy. And a lot of the time it's, um, it's moral supremacy, really. Yeah. Someone wants to be able to cudgel you into their way of thinking and to do that, they will use whatever tools are at their disposal. It's, it's classic postmodernism and it's classic Marxism. You use power to achieve your ends and your ends are also power. So, you know, it's a, it's a snake that's eating its own tail, which is precisely why it works absolutely 0% of the time in government and, and why it seems to still have such social cachet among so many young people who just don't pick up history books and read them. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm horrified <laughs> at your story. I really am. I mean, just the, uh, you know, the, the, your own personal, uh, ugly trial that you had to go through in this situation the circumstances of it what it's done to you is 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 really awful and i'm pleased that you've been brave enough to put it down in writing because i do think you whether you know it or not you probably speak for so many other men who are either embarrassed to even talk about these things because the cost for them of talking about it is quite high um or they are they're quietly as you say desperate hoping something will come along that will reverse their fortunes and reunite them with their children. Either way, this is just absolutely essential reading. The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. Greg Ellis, you've, um, you've really done it all. I mean, you've, you've even put something back here, and I'm, I'm horrified that this happened to you, but I'm glad that you've been able to share it with us because I think we'd all be much poorer for not hearing your story. And, and good for those guys who've come out and, and fought like Brad Pitt and Johnny Depp. And you're right. He, he, you know, he wrote this, this opening for your book, which I think will help many people to take note of it because he's such a big movie star, but you yourself have not had a, a, a bad career. So the fact that you're this famous guy who's telling the story is, uh, is amazing. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, hopefully something good will come from it. Um, if anyone's interested, the respondent.com, um, mm-hmm. has news about the book. Uh, there's a download, download, free downloadable ebook, um, at the website, therespondent.com. And that offers, uh, it's full of tips and insights and secrets on how to navigate the trauma of family separation for those stuck in the, um, the horrors of, uh, divorce court and family law. Um, there's information on the charity as well, CPU, Children and Parents United. Um, and our mission is to promote and improve child well-being. Um, by providing more information and resources um, to um, the public, um, policymakers, practitioners, legislatures, um, to really help those and reduce the conflict to help those parents, children and partners who are, who are stuck in this. And- 
The yeah. stakes couldn't be higher. We're talking about the next generation of human beings who are going to be trying to make lives for themselves on planet Earth. There is not a single example of a society anywhere where fathers have become less involved and the society's got better. I agree, Gareth. And, and Am I wrong? Is there a single example anywhere in the world of children just being raised by the mums and they're better off than the kids who've been raised by mums and dads? Is not that I'm a- aware of. And I think this is, this. I, I mean, it sounds like a little hyperbole and dramatic to say, I think, I think the breakdown of the family is the biggest civilizational catastrophe we're facing today. But I do genuinely believe that we, we, we focus so much on the identity of the politics and intersectionality and one aspect of that and go down the, and eventually identity politics will devour itself. But at what cost? And the cost to men, the cost to, to men, minorities, um, men of color, uh, men of all colors. We are one human race and we should be a more humane race rather than inhumane and finding ways to, to help people, to keep people alive and not delight. I see people delighting in death, in the death of their supposed um, enemy. Yeah, oppressors. It's, it's also, it's a, it's a bit of a zero sum game for some people. You know, they, they, they can only destroy things. So they don't like to see other people build things. And there's nothing that's more upsetting to someone who's got a ruined family or a dark and ugly or deviant life of their own than to see other people raising their kids properly, doing the right thing, trying to live moral upstanding lives. It's just, it's, it's throwing their own failure in their face. And I'm sure that that's part of the motivation behind so many of these people who are just dead against anyone else having a happy family. We have a meaning crisis. We have a, we have a meaning crisis, a crisis of meaning, a crisis of faith, uh, uh, whatever that, that those practices, rituals, belief systems that, that we inherit, those coming of ages that we usually come from our uh, faith based institutions. And I'm not particularly, you know, a religious person. Um, yeah. but we, we do need to really focus on what these, these causes are and how we can bring back the idea of men. Um, that not all, I can't believe I'm saying this, Gareth. Not all men are bad. <laughs> no, but you don't have to say it. I mean, uh, you know, you, uh, it, it's not too much to say that not only are you among friends, but that point of view is, is the majority point of view. It's a very small group of people who have the opposite point of view. And unfortunately, they have a huge share of voice. Um, and it's up to people like you to speak out in ways that you are. And and I'm I'm really grateful that you have. As someone who isn't even a father yet, you know, it just gives, well, thank gives me... You gives me enormous uh, hope that, that there's a there's a pushback against yeah this. and i think i think one of the one of the messages i, I want to leave uh, your listeners watchers and viewers with and yourself is my book is not about anger i'm not angry about what happened i'm not bitter about what happened there are no thoughts of negativity towards my ex-wife and the system um finding a way to recover from this and afford relief and to self-regulate and find a way to, to move forward and actually find more meaning uh, from these situations, from these experiences. Um, so if anyone out there is listening or watching who is struggling through this, believe that there is hope. There are lights at the end of those dark tunnels. And not only can you survive, but you can move forward to, to thrive. Uh, and empower and, and share and, and be fulfilled. I think that's where we talk about happiness a lot. Have, have you, have you had any catharsis from this book? Has it given you any personal movement forward? Yeah, that's a really good. Oh, well, that's stopped me in my tracks. That question. I just, I just had this, uh, what, what came off me right then was the writing of the book and how it took a few years, not on a daily basis. There were months I had to take off from writing it. There's a chapter, there's actually a page toward the end of the book um, that took me 56 attempts to write because every time I, I need to think about it right now, I just, I get very emotional about it. Um, it's a letter to my sons. And um, huh. they're um, the special boys. Um, that's really special. And, uh, that's the hardest. What they went through, no child should ever have to endure that. 
um, and too many of our children are enduring that, um, similar to my boys. So the, 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 the challenge of revisiting the story and writing the story and finding a way to make sense of the story and then offer some solutions, offer some help um, and some redemptive, positive aspects to the book, to the charity, um, to the overall project um, was was really really special. But it was it wasn't easy. <laughs> I think you can see well, that. Uh, it, it seems like it's, it's it, it continues to not be easy. But you're a brave man, Greg Ellis. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, that's um, that was terrific. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's really special that you're highlighting this. Really. It's really, no, it's a pleasure, and I, I hope that the book gets lots and lots of attention, and I hope it also gets lots of negative attention because that'll be unfortunately <laughs> the only thing that propel it into the mainstream media. You know, if it was <sighs> yeah. more positive stuff, and you've just got to be ready for that too, because um, you know you're going to be called all kinds of things. You're going to be the poster boy for toxic masculinity now. I know. I, you know, even before the book came out, I'd, I'd had the charge of transphobic, racist, you name it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and you know, I'm not going to seek out the sensational. I'm just going to keep talking about the message, but it will happen. <laughs> it's bound to. No, it's bound to. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Have a very good evening or day as it is where you are. And uh, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. You too, Gareth. And thanks to your team as well. Great to see you. Thank you, Greg. You as well. Be well. Bye. 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 Cliffcentral.com